Hello, and welcome to the New Mexico Autism Project podcast for educators. These podcasts, as well as our online training series, have been developed by the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department as a resource for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices for working with students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. We hope that you enjoy this series, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district through the NMPED Autism Project, please contact me, Patrick Blevins, at the email address shown on the slide or call the UNM CDD at Welcome to this series of podcasts on evidence-based practices sponsored by the New Mexico Public Education Department and presented by the Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities Division of the Center for Development and Disability. I am Marianne Trott. I was a classroom teacher for a long, long time, a consultant for a long time. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and I am your host for this series of podcasts. Before we get to the content of each podcast, it's important that you know what evidence-based practices are, and I know many of you do know that, but we're going to review just briefly. An evidence-based practice is an instructional or intervention procedure or set of procedures for which researchers have provided an acceptable level of research that shows the practice produces positive outcomes for children, youth, and or adults with ASD. And that's from the Autism Professional Development Center. That research, though, must then be integrated with clinical or teaching expertise in the, content of the, in the context of the patient or the student, um, integrated with the characteristics, culture, and preferences to make decisions about the use of evidence-based practices. So while we have scientific evidence, a big part of um, making it an evidence-based practice is the skill of the practitioner and also the characteristics and preferences of the student and some cultural considerations as well. And that's from the National Institutes of Health. Many evidence-based interventions are actually many interventions that serve the same purpose, all considered together. And an example of that is antecedent interventions, which we'll talk about today. Antecedent interventions are designed to alter the environment before a behavior occurs. So some antecedent interventions are priorities for teaching. For example, Another podcast focuses on functional communication. It's an important skill that requires ongoing instruction as it continues to be used as an antecedent interventions. So when we talk about antecedent interventions, we're talking about all of the things that you can do before those big bad behaviors occur to keep them from happening. And that is the, um, the, those are the best interventions. The interventions that prevent behaviors from happening so that you, then you're not having to deal with the aftermath of the behavior. You're not having to respond to behaviors. Uh, you're dealing with them before they happen. And those are really the very best interventions.
So um, Carrie Boatwright joins us today to talk about antecedent interventions. And uh, Carrie, if you would please introduce yourself and uh, tell us uh, where you're teaching and what your position is, and then uh, talk to us a little bit about your experiences learning about and using antecedent interventions. Sure. My name is Carrie Boatwright. I am currently the Special Services Coordinator for Elementary Schools in Carlsbad. I was a self-contained or one of our most restrictive environment, like life skills classroom teacher for um, about seven, eight years and before I moved into this position. And my experience, some, some of it was just um, trial and error, but I, I was lucky enough to be trained in some of the ABA stuff through care um, I learned a lot about how to prevent behaviors before they started because when, when you're in the middle of a behavior, it's, it's not as easy to implement some of those strategies. Um, some of the most effective strategies I used really and truly were social stories. Um, I would define kind of the behavior we needed to see in the classroom or what um, our routines and procedures needed to look like so that the students understood how to perform that particular behavior. Um, it did help us with some of the, to knock out some of the negative stuff. For instance, when I had a, a student who would come in and um, he was an AU student and he would just immediately throw his backpack and start jumping up and down and yelling. He was nonverbal, but he could yell um, very loudly because he, <laughs> his expectation was just, we're going to go to school and have breakfast immediately. So one of the things I put into place was telling him the day before, and then also giving parents the information to prep him before he came into the building, that he would have three steps he had to follow before it was breakfast time. Um, that helped him understand that he had to do step one, step two, and step three, then it would be time for us to go get our breakfast from the cafeteria. And I would say we went from being beat up every morning to delaying that particular kind of behavior till he became frustrated with us later in the day. So the mornings were really smooth with him after we did that. Um, it just is a tremendous help to pre-teach some of that stuff and to put some of those, like we would put the physical prompt and the verbal prompt picture prompts in there for that student to support him. Boy, that's a great example, Carrie, and I, I really appreciate it. I've certainly had similar experiences. And you you mentioned the uh, prompting that you used, and that is the topic of another podcast. So be sure and listen to that one if you were interested in the various kinds of prompting. Um, and you also mentioned a step one, step two, and step three. So I'm wondering if maybe you used a schedule, which is maybe another, um, which is definitely another um, antecedent intervention. Absolutely. We used um, visual schedules with every student and with our students who were nonverbal. It helped us communicate with them. They seemed to understand once a, once a step was completed, um, for him, it was Velcro. So he could take that step off of his, of his task. I called them task analysis. But um, once that particular thing was done, he, he knew he was on step two. And it wasn't just a bunch of us like our words, wait, 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 we're not ready, wait, breakfast is coming in a minute. Um, it just helped him 
visually see what the next thing was. But yes, we use picture schedules uh, with every single student all day long. Great, and that that's a, a great antecedent intervention. And I know you know many uh, teachers uh, feel as if you know students ought to respond to verbal directions. But as we are talking a lot about students who have some pretty significant uh, disabilities, including autism, uh, the the picture schedule or a word schedule, if your student is able to follow that, uh, is a really important intervention. And and yes, it is important that you know those things kind of eventually fade out, um, but. But, you know, some of us uh, still need a schedule of some kind, uh, you know, for life lifelong. And so that is a prompt uh, that doesn't really need to be faded. And it is definitely an antecedent intervention to, to let people know what's coming next. So that is really a, a great uh, example for us. And I'm sure you have many others, uh, as we'll talk about as we go on here. Um, as I mentioned, there are a lot of antecedent interventions, and teachers are often very masterful at using them, though they may not use some of the vocabulary we'll introduce today. And so one of those examples is actually, uh, Carrie used the term task analysis, and you probably are, fit, are familiar with a task analysis, which is just breaking down a task into little bitty pieces, and it's another strategy. I mean, it could be the topic of a whole other uh, podcast, uh, but having those things completed ahead of time and uh, in a way that is uh, readable for the student is, again, a great um, antecedent intervention in that, again, it alters the environment by providing cues in the environment that help the student know uh, what's going to happen. So, um, Let's talk a little bit more about uh, what kind of antecedent interventions do you use yourself and which ones that you suggest to the teachers that you work with? Um, so the ones, <laughs> the ones I use myself are um, just about everything that I could, I could find uh, when, when the UNM people would come and visit our classrooms. I always... Uh, wanted to see what they did to prevent a behavior. How was, how do you stop a behavior from happening before it ever happens? Um, because that makes not just your life easier as a teacher, but it, it helps ease that student, help them feel safe in the classroom that they know they're not gonna have to have this big behavior to get their need met or, or understand what's going on to communicate with you. Um, the one I always use always was the pictures. I always used a picture support system or a visual schedule at some point, like just writing down on the board, first um, breakfast, second math, third reading, and then we go to recess. So they had an idea, kind of some predictability in their day. If they understood what was happening and it didn't change all the time, they became, uh, they just felt safe. They just kind of felt like, yep, I understand what's going on. I know what is happening next so that when things like a fire drill did happen, it was a little bit easier for us to um, help them ease them through that particular change that you can't control. So um, the, mo the, the thing I love the most is just help helping teachers decide if they have predictable routines, set structure in their classroom. Um, and I, I joke a lot um, with our behavior specialists in our district, 
because I, every time I go into a classroom, I tell the, it's where the teacher's struggling with behaviors. I look around and I say, okay, in your room, all of this stuff, all over the place, what do you use to teach every day? If you're not using it to teach every day, you need to find a place for it to go. Um, visually, sometimes our kids get overstimulated. They don't know where to look. So they start fidgeting in their chairs. And then pretty soon they're under the desk, playing under their chair, turning stuff over. And in our regular classrooms, those are, those are things that impede instruction for teachers because they stop what they're doing and then they try to control that behavior where if we can limit what comes in at kids visually and auditorily, and we can help them focus on what, what they need to do at that moment, because we've, we've set up that schedule, we have those routines, then I think we're seeing fewer and fewer. It's not, I think, I've seen it. Um, we have the data to prove it, that we see the behaviors decrease, um, the negative behaviors, and we see those positive behaviors increase. They'll, they'll tell us, hey, he came in and put his backpack up and got his bell workout. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that happened for you. Um, whereas before he would come in and knock everybody's stuff off their tables and um, just be in everybody else's faces and those things that interrupt instruction on a regular basis. I think when we can help structure the environment that they're in, it it's just amazing how much it decreases some of those negative behaviors. That's a really great example. And um, notice, too, um, that predictable routine, a set structure, um, an environment that reduces visual and auditory stimuli, those are things that really, I think, help all of us. Uh, for for learning and uh, for being able to predict what's happening in our lives and probably being able to behave ourselves in our environments a little bit better. So it's uh, not it's it's really important to notice that these are not um, strategies that are specific only for people with disabilities. These are strategies for really for teaching, and uh, you know having observed many many classrooms over many many years, it just is it is. True truly amazing. Uh, what, you know, a good kindergarten teacher, boy, you watch those teachers and see that they structure absolutely everything. And then as children learn it, as you said, the pre-teaching, as children learn the structure, then you can begin to back off just a little bit. And of course, as children mature uh, and learn more, you can back off some of, of, of the, you know, things. But it really is important, again, for all of us to have a predictable routine to have a set structure and to have an environment that is really calming uh, visually and auditorily. And that may make um, a big, uh, that, that may be different for individuals with disabilities. So those that's, uh, are some great examples. And I love the fact that you're thinking about really all kids and not just the kids with disabilities. So um, what other kinds of um, antecedent-based interventions uh, do you use? Yeah, so when we go in to talk to people about specific students and the behaviors are pretty extreme, um, they're refusing to do work, tearing stuff up, hurting others, those are the ones where we get really specific. So we've talked to them about the environment, we've talked to them about routine and procedures, and even some of the most structured teachers will have kids who come in with behavior disorder or with an autism diagnosis, um, and those kids struggle. 
So one of the things I like to do is say, how, how much choice can you give this student in their day? Because we are always imposing our rules or imposing our um, structure, what we think is right and wrong in a school onto kids. And it kind of makes them feel like they have no power or control in a situation. And I think when we can offer choice, it empowers that student and it, it just allows them to see I have control when I'm at school. It's not just a bunch of people telling me what to do. This person I trust now gives me the choice to do this or this. And, and when we're um, thinking about giving choice, people are like, oh, you're going to let them not do work? Not exactly. Um, so some of the choices you might give someone is say Carrie needs to do her math, but that is one of those subjects that really pushes her over the edge. You can, um, well, Carrie, you can work at your desk on this math assignment, or you can come to the kidney table and work with me on this math assignment. Um, so it, she still does the math assignment, but she has a choice as to the location or if she's going to have help doing it. Um, I think with one of our recent students, we've, we've given him, you can do this writing paragraph on the whiteboard at your desk, or you can type it into the computer because we know he does like pen and paper. If you even mention that you're going to need your pencil to write this on paper, it is a trigger for him. So we prompt him with the choice before the assignment, you're going to have you're going to be able to choose the, the whiteboard or you're going to be able to choose the computer to type it in. Then he's still accomplishing the task of writing his paragraph, his summary paragraph with the main idea, the supporting details and the conclusion. We haven't, he hasn't opted out of the assignment at that point. That has worked very well for him. He feels like he's in control and he's like, well, I said, I'm going to do it on the computer and watch this. Um, it just kind of, it works for him. Those are really good examples, and it, 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 is, it doesn't have to be huge choices. It doesn't have to be, are you going to work today or are you not going to work today? It's just a series of little choices. And, um, of course, and I, I'm, I expect in your experience you've uh, run into those kids that have to be taught how to make choices before you can use that particular um, intervention. Absolutely, yes. So, you know, it just kind of depends on the level of student you have. Um, if you're in a life skills class, your choices might look different for each kid. And the output of the work is going to look different for each kid. You're, you're looking at their, their goals and how to help them meet that goal. Um, and your, your big overarching goal is how do I help this kid participate in the society he's in, whether it's in this school community, whether it's in his home community or out in the actual community, going to restaurants or going to stores, because, you know, sometimes we know little things like that are really difficult for our kids with AU. So um, I used social stories every single day, um, whether I had a whole book with pictures or if it was just some verbal reminders of expectations or how to handle a situation. It was, um, and sometimes I was able to use other students to help me, some of the typically developing peers at recess or at lunchtime were my favorite because we could get the other kids involved and they can 
it's a role model type of situation, which is like a live version of a social story. Um, and to me, most of teaching routines and procedures, teaching period is kind of like a social story. <laughs> it's how, what I wanna see out of you, what, what I want your output to be, um, and how you make the grade or, or meet your goal or whatever in this particular class with me as your teacher. Um, oh, that, that is so true. And um, I think uh, if, if our listeners uh, are interested um, in terms of evidence-based practices, it's usually listed as a social narrative. Uh-huh. Um, so that would be an important thing to, to look up if you're, if you're thinking about using social narratives, social stories is sort of copyrighted. Uh, but anyway, social narratives. And then, you know, what you just mentioned as far as modeling, uh, that would certain that is uh, an evidence-based practice uh, and it is a really good one. And one of the ones that I, I know um, some kids really enjoy is video modeling, where mm-hmm. they uh, can, um, you know, show the behavior and then they can watch it over and over again, and it makes it easy for them to repeat. Uh, so those are, are great um, um, antecedent strategies. Uh, and you and you mentioned the, the prompting, which includes those visuals. I mean, we use the visuals, as you said, daily. And, you know, not to be mistaken, this is something that we all, we all use visual prompts on a daily basis. And that is the way our environment helps us to operate the best. Um, and I love that you talked about, you know, what's going to help students um, be um, a part of their community. Uh, Pat McGreevy talks about uh, independence and quality of life, um, particularly in terms of focusing on those kids that require higher levels of support. Um, so, you know, the evident, the um, antecedent strategies for those kids is going to be a little bit different. So you've really got, uh, brought up some great examples. What other kinds of things do you think about? One of the strategies that I, I found I had to teach once I got the kids, I was using the reinforcers and motivating them with um, the praise for a behavior. I I got to where I was like, okay, so now they can do this when I do this part, they can perform this goal. So I don't know, how do I fade some of that support a little bit or how do I increase their wait time a little bit? Um, so I would try um, different things. Now with some students, it was a more successful at a faster rate than with other students. Um, so I had, to, I had to really do some self-talk and say, don't give up just because it's not working right now for the student. Reset, redo, let's practice again. Um, but I, with, I delayed the reinforcement so they would have to have two or three behaviors in a row before um, they got a particular reinforcement with praise or whether it was a gummy bear or whether it was a happy face. Um, I had one little dude that would just do almost anything as long as you would give him a happy face on his uh, chart, his behavior chart that got home, sent home every day with, to mom. I think the reinforcement on that one was that mom really was very proud of him when he had happy faces and he liked that. I don't know that it was so much that he was Oh, Miss Carrie thinks I'm great. Um, I really do think it came from how much mom praised him for having happy faces. But in the beginning, if he sat down in his chair, happy face. If he picked up his pencil and was ready to work, happy face. And we got to fade that so that if if we were at the reading center, he had to complete the entire reading thing before he got that 
reinforcement for him. So delaying some of that, um, that was a good strategy that um, I believe, I forget exactly who, who came in. It must've been our behavior therapist was like, you're gonna be um, rewarding these kids forever if you don't figure out how to phase some of that out. And so um, that was, that wasn't an easy thing for me to learn, but once I figured it out, I was like, oh, okay, so he will do five, six, seven things. And then it got to the point where, you know, halfway through the day, we could do it right before lunch and then we could do it right after, uh, we're right before he went home. So, which was afternoon recess. But yeah, that the, the time delay to increase those, more of those behaviors that you wanna see helps them kind of realize that when you're out out and about in the world. Not everybody's going to have a gummy bear to give you just because you put your seatbelt on um, or because you didn't throw the cans out of the grocery cart when, when you went to the store with mom. It just helps the parents delay kind of that reinforcement until they, they got home or until it was a more appropriate time to give it to them. They could give it to them after church and, and different things. When I was in the, the most restrictive environment classroom, our life skills class, the biggest thing parents were with AU students where I just want to go to the grocery store and not have everybody staring at me because my kid is face down on the ground um, screaming. So uh, that was one of the big things that we tried to help parents integrate into our classroom so that they could take those same behavior strategies outside of the, the classroom and, and put in some of those antecedents, like the social story about going to the grocery store. Um, and then telling them what they would get, what they're earning after the grocery store. What, and it was usually something simple. You know, one student would work for a strawberry for his mom. One, one just wanted the happy face and he was just happy if mom gave that to him at the end of the trip. So. That's a, those are great examples and, and so important. And, you know, we talk about antecedent interventions, altering the environment. And you just talked about how you can alter the environment at the grocery store. You alter that environment by providing choice or by providing a social story or uh, by using a, uh, a delayed um, a reinforcer um, and allowing more time to pass before that person gets a reinforcer. Uh, which is also um, really important in making them not prompt dependent, um, not dependent on that, you know, knowing that that reinforcer is coming immediately, which is, is so important. And as our, our data shows us that, um, you know, reinforcing too frequently, um, too much is, is going to backfire on us eventually. So uh, you're really talking about a lot of antecedent interventions that really kind of flow into a lot of behavioral principles, um, but you're giving some really good examples of the way that they work. Um, and increasing the wait time is, is really an important one and increase and delaying the reinforcement until eventually, you know, as you mentioned with your little guy with the happy faces, his environment, his natural environment was eventually going to take over that reinforcement. And for a young child being able to take home to mom, the happy faces and get praise, that really is a, a natural uh, kind of a, a reinforcement. And so that uh, is a really important thing to do so that it's not, you know, teacher providing, you know, happy faces all day, every day, but eventually the praise and mom's pleasure is going to take over that reinforcement. So uh, that's, that's really a good one. And it's a little bit, uh, you know, I know one of 
the reinforcers that we talk, uh, one of the um, antecedent strategies we talk about is contriving motivating operations, which is just a really fancy way of, you know, setting a kid up uh, for, you know, being ready to do something like, uh, you know, you talked about yourself with, with uh, math. Well, you know, if you um, had to finish math before, say one of the, your favorite things, which I don't know, maybe is art or maybe is lunch. Uh, that might be a way that you can contrive those motivating operations. Um, can you think of other examples uh, for that one that, as I say, it's, you know, fancy language, but what it means is just kind of thinking, hmm, what is going to make this person want to do whatever I want them to do? Yeah, so one of the most recent things that we've been working on with a specific student here is this third grader who really loves a certain program on his Chromebook. Um, it's called Prodigy. And man, he will do everything he can to sneak in Prodigy time. And it was interrupting the other things that he needed to complete on the Chromebook. Now that we're mostly Google Classroom bound, um, through the circumstances we've been in, teachers really incorporate technology in the classrooms. And the teacher was just like, he's doing no work. He's only getting on Prodigy. So, so I said, okay, what about giving him the 10 minutes of Prodigy time before, you know, you're doing bell work, it's practice work. He's a gifted student with behavior problems. He probably doesn't need the bell work practice work. Let's look and see. So, um, we were right. He didn't need it. He was allowed to, not in front of everybody, of course, because it's hard when you have all the other eyeballs staring at you in the classroom. Why does he get that one I tell? Um, but he got his, he has a special corner in the classroom that he gets to go to to take some breaks if he gets overwhelmed. So for the first 10 minutes of class while she's doing, uh, go, uh, finishing up breakfast and while she's doing the attendance, he's doing the prodigy, which is math-based anyway. So he was getting math practice, served the purpose of the bell work. And then when it came to actually doing the work on the Chromebook, he was more willing to say, all right, I can do this. And, um, and that strategy has worked for this particular student, like a charm. Um, it was, I was like, wow, that worked better than I thought it was going to um, because for the rest of the day, he, he did not battle to get back on that computer program when they got their Chromebooks out. So uh, it was, it was amazing. I, did, I had no idea it was going to work as well as it did, but that is one of the things that um, sometimes we can use. Um, well, and, and that too is an example of uh, non-contingent reinforcement, which I know uh, is something that we often um, tell teachers, uh, more non-contingent reinforcement. And I think that sometimes that's really hard for teachers to understand. Um, but the example that you gave is, okay, he didn't have to earn his time with the prodigy. Is that right? Uh -huh. He didn't have to earn his time with Prodigy. It was just something that happened for him. So it was a non-contingent reinforcement and it set him up to be successful later on. Do you have other examples of uh, non-contingent reinforcement that you've used with your students? And, um, you know, maybe some of those students that are, uh, uh, that need um, higher levels of support? Um, yeah, yeah. So when I think about, um, 
non-contingent reinforcement. It, it really is just setting them up to have, to be able to make those appropriate decisions like the computer time. Um, and, and it can be phased out, like our non-contingent stuff can be phased out a little bit easier for students like that, because then eventually they get to where they're like, I know I'm gonna get this, it's not such a desirable thing. I'm just gonna go over here and do what I'm supposed to do anyway, because I know eventually this is gonna happen in my life. Um, but one of the things we try to do is those, the non-contingent um, reinforcement is those built-in breaks for some of our students. They don't have to have good behavior to get a break. They don't have to have bad behavior to get a break. They know that they're just going to be allowed to take this five to 10 minutes to reset and recharge, and then they're going to get back to, to business. Um, that is one of the ones that I think works really well for most of our students, as long as they're not, you know, given 30 minute breaks. I, I, I've never had a lengthy one that I had to put into place. Uh, that's that's a great example and and one that is really can be very very useful is just to to know and again these are things that we use with ourselves we we just say okay I'm going to take five minutes to do this and then I'm going to get down to business um, and so again it's something that can happen in the real world and the other thing that I think that sometimes we just uh, we forget about with our kids is is you know just making our environment and ourselves as pleasant as we possibly can. Hey, buddy, it's so great to see you. Uh, wow, that's just really a cute shirt. I'm so glad you're in my classroom. Those kinds of things that just make feel students feel appreciated and welcomed. Uh, you know, pats on the back or, or various things like that are really very simple, uh, non-contingent reinforcement. But it really is uh, sometimes hard for teachers to uh, say, wait a minute, he didn't earn that. He didn't, he didn't, you know, earn a extra sticker on his paper or his behavior chart or whatever. Um, and so, um, you know, why should I give that to him? But non-contingent reinforcement, we know from the research, is one of the most powerful antecedent strategies that if kids know that they're going to get what they want and what they need ahead of time, uh, their behaviors improve significantly. Um, so do you have anything else to add about uh, non-contingent reinforcement? No, I love how you put that, um, that it, it can just be, we, called it, we call it building rapport with your students, but just Perfect. simply be that, hey, I'm glad you're here today. You, all he did was walk in the school. He showed up today. Um, and that has been an effective with this one little boy that I'm thinking about. We, we even had to put a side-by-side -side, um, paraprofessional in there to support him. And the most effective thing that when he verbalizes what's helping him, well, she likes me. <laughs> so it's amazing how far that will go. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it just is, is truly amazing. A lot of kids don't get a lot of that non-contingent reinforcement. And so uh, it's, it's, it can be hard. <laughs> As we know, you know, the guy that comes in, you know, throwing his stuff down first thing in the morning, it can be a little bit hard to find those opportunities to just say, wow, let's, you know, throw the baseball around a little bit or, you know, play ball outside uh, just, just for fun. Um, those, those can be hard opportunities to find but they are extremely powerful and uh, very important. Um, 
so there are a couple here on the list that, that we talked about that we haven't quite talked about yet. Uh, do you want to uh, um, look at those and, and give us some examples? So um, when I think about priming, that was one of the more difficult ones to wrap my brain around when I was when I was teaching those life skills classes. And I don't know why I had to practice it quite a bit on other people before I, I got to where I was pretty good at doing it with students. Um, it just priming is, is focusing on those tasks that are already easy for the student. You know, the students going to, can come in and sit down. So you're going to have moments or opportunities where you're just giving that demand of those quick little, um, things to do that they already know. And it's giving frequent reinforcement for things that they already can participate in and then that helps you um, set them up to be ready to do some of those tasks that are a little more difficult so I would probably like for example um, the little guy in my class that didn't want to practice writing his name um, it was okay um, hey sit down good job sitting down so we're going to sit down and get pencil or get crayon or whatever um, and I would do all the things that I knew he was high. It was a high probability he was going to engage in because he already did those things. And I would reinforce those. So when it came to, okay, write a D, um, he was more likely to participate in writing the D. And before we knew it, um, he didn't need to practice that anymore. He already, he was just, that became one of his high probability things that he was going to do. So we could build in something a little more complicated for him. Um, that's what yeah. I used priming for. That's a great example. And uh, you also mentioned a little earlier uh, pre-teaching. And mm -hmm. when I think about, uh, you know, particularly or many times kids that are going to be included in a, um, in a less restrictive environment in a general education or a less restrictive environment, um, I often worked with those teachers to say, okay, what is it that you're going to do? And then before uh, sending that child to the environment, that environment, I might do a little pre-teaching or a little priming. Uh, to, to make sure that they could uh, participate in, in that activity. Um, and that's, that's an also something that, that you can do. Uh, the high probability request sequence, you, you gave a perfect as, example, is you think about those things you know the kid can do and will do before you throw in that zinger that's a little bit harder for them. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, uh, the high probability request sequence is kind of related to the pre-MAC principle or grandma's rule, first this and then that. First you eat your peas and then you get your, your dessert. So that high probability request sequence is a matter of uh, first you make a choice. Uh, are you going to do this or that? Uh, are you going to use crayon or marker? Uh, where are you going to sit? Uh, and then, you know, here's, here's this piece. So start off with this and then maybe the address, writing the address is the next thing. So uh, that, that is a good example of a high probability request sequence. Um, so we are getting a little bit close to where we need to be finished. What haven't you told us about antecedent strategies that would be uh, really helpful for our listeners to know? Hmm, I don't know. Well, uh, we've talked about a lot. <laughs> we one, have. <laughs> one of the things I used every single day with um, a student for about a year 
I was able to pro, uh, fade it a little bit after the first year, but um, it was a, it was his behavior book. It was positive behaviors. So if, if I needed him to sit at the table to do the reading center, I reviewed that. It was kind of like a book of mini social stories or little mini um, just prompts, verbal prompts or visual prompts of what appropriate behavior looked like. And it's, and I could do it for cafeteria. I could do it for um, if he went to the library, what the expectations were going to be. And I found that when we were able to pre-teach it, like you were talking about, or use that behavior book, and it was his, he owned it, it had his picture on it, it had his name in it, it was all about him. Um, he, his behaviors diminished to the point where people were like, what happened? Is this kid on a medicine? Like, what's going on? And um, no, literally, it's just this book uh, that we could refer to if we thought his like um, pre-behavior, sometimes they have a vocalization or, you know, you start seeing them kind of warm up to having an inappropriate behavior. If we could pick up on those, we could introduce the book, but mostly we were able to use it before we saw anything happening. We could line out the expectations and he was willing to say, okay, I got it. I could handle this. Boy, that is just a great example for us to, to end up a little bit with, because you said, as you said, it kind of uh, you know, altered the environment, uh, let him know what, what needed to come first. And it reminds me of a, a, a woman that I worked with for many years, and she would often um, make problem, problem books. I have a problem. And, uh, you know, like with kids who uh, always say, I, I remember one of the kids that we worked with had, um, he would uh, he, he would have a problem if he he it had to be perfect so he'd erase too much and then he would you know go through the paper and then it would be a big problem and he'd be upset because the paper ripped or whatever uh, and so she created essentially a, a social narrative for him that said I have a problem when I erase too much my paper rips and then there were solutions to the problem and the there was one that you could ask the teacher for tape number two you could ask for a new paper number three you could wait to correct the mistake until you finished um, and so in some of those he couldn't do he couldn't wait to correct the mistake uh, but he did get to where he was pretty good about asking for a new sheet of paper because the tape didn't make it look very good. Um, but there were a lot of problems like that, that you could just think, here's the problem, here's the solution. He could look it up and then it didn't turn into a big behavior. So that's very similar in terms of, of what you're talking about as a, a, you know, sort of a good behavior book or, or something like that. So that's a great example. Um, and you've given us a lot to think about that are, you know, not particularly on the uh, lists of uh, antecedent and interventions. So, and I guess that's one of the things that I kind of want to leave our, our listeners with is the fact that anything that keeps a behavior from happening in the first place is an antecedent intervention. Um, and uh, one of the examples that I'm thinking of is uh, some students respond very negatively to being told no. So, you know, and that's something, of course, you have to learn to respond to be able to tolerate being told no. But Maybe not today. Maybe today we just start with not using the word no and reinforcing the things that we want that person to do. And then eventually we teach 
how to tolerate those things that are hard for us. So it doesn't mean that you're going to change things forever. It means that you're going to figure out how to make it easier for the student in the first place and then teach the things that they need to learn because really teaching is always the key. Do you have anything to add? No, I think you summed that up very well. Okay. Well, Carrie, I really appreciate it. You gave us some great examples, a lot of things to really think about. Uh, and um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.